0: Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. Now, if you'll please join in the words for lighting the chalice. They're printed in your order of service and also projected. We light this chalice chalice to the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the energy of action, as we gather together in the circle of community. Now take a deep breath. The air outside these walls is cold. We need love as much as we ever have. We need warmth and kindness, care and attention. And when we share these, the air doesn't feel so cold. Take a deep breath. And hear in this sound The call for you to be the warmth, for you to be the kindness. Hear it as a tone of hope ringing out. Breathe and listen. An old friend of mine, Swiss born, always used to marvel that I could say, I loved him and I love avocados. Surely, he would say, a language as extensive as English must have different words for those different feelings. And I would laugh and I would say, it's all in the way you deliver it. I love avocados. I love you. There are many types of love. Humans have understood this for a long time. In English, we use context to indicate which one is in play, but there are words for the ways that we feel. Greek words, old words, words that feel familiar and strange at the same time, not unlike newfound love of all kinds. Eros, love of another filled with passion and desire, at times unrequited, at times fulfilled. Philia. Love of another filled with goodwill and respect, creating mutual care and support. Storge, love of family, especially the children in our care whose lives we protect. Agape, that's one we talk about here a lot. Love of all things, universal love of people, of earth, of our notion of the transcendent. And then philautia, love of self that one that so many of us struggle to achieve, so at risk of edging into hubris and an outside view, outsized view of ourselves, so at risk of seeming selfish or self-aggrandizing, overly confident or too big, philautia, love of self, that one that is so vital to our survival, so integral because at its best, It creates in us a core of resilience and thus an openness to living life fully. Life offers us the chance to love in many ways, though the world of greeting cards and chocolate and flowers would have us stay boxed inside a perfect heart. Life offers us the chance to love in many ways, and so we gather. As an act of universal love, we come into a time and space that encourages us to change the world, As an act of love for our people, we come into a time and space that asks us to offer care to others. As an act of self-love, we come into a time and space for self-reflection, self-renewal, and to be reminded that indeed we are deeply loved. Welcome to you this morning, you with all the different types of love you have to give. Welcome. Every Sunday that we gather together, we take time in our service to be quiet, to pray or meditate, to reflect and remember what it is to be silent. This morning, as every Sunday, I invite you to use this silence that we will embrace together in a way that makes sense for you. We'll get there by practicing some deep breathing, and I'll offer some words for centering your thoughts. So first, please find as comfortable a position as you can in your seat. Let your hands fall loosely. Let your shoulders drop. Relax your jaw and your neck. If you can, if it feels comfortable, plant your feet on the floor. And then take a deep breath. We breathe deeply together at the beginning of our service to bring us into this space as a community of seekers. Now we breathe deeply to bring ourselves into our own unique bodies. To center ourselves deep within aligning our minds and hearts and spirits as we breathe. Take a slow and deep breath. All too often, from both the outside and the inside, we have voices telling us we are not enough. Not tall enough. Not pretty enough, not smart enough, not rich enough, not funny enough, not thin enough, not popular enough, not strong enough, not enough, just not enough. So take a deep breath and shut those voices down. take a slow breath and refuse to hear them. As you breathe, listen instead for other voices. Maybe it was a parent or other adult who loved you deeply when you were small. Maybe a partner, a child, a friend, a mentor. Maybe you hear my voice. The voice that says, you are beautiful. You are powerful. You are perfectly imperfect. You are unique. You are you and that is enough. It's the voice that says, your grace can heal. Your kindness can change a heart. Your life can change the world. Your love is a gift worth treasuring. It's the voice that says, you are loved. You are loved. In the silence, listen for those voices, those words, and add your own. Remind yourself of all that is wonderful about you. In the silence, offer your thoughts and prayers to yourself. Reflect on the wonder of you. Take a deep breath. (laughs) Divinity School was the first time I felt like I had found my people. I had been the type of kid who invented an afterlife in fourth grade, I will tell you about it sometime. Uh, I was thinking about death and God and reading books by the Pope and sitting in pews thinking that I could do that thing the guy in the robe up there was doing. For most of my childhood, I had the sense that my friendships were one-sided, that I gave and didn't take. Surely that wasn't all true, and surely it was largely my fault. And in adulthood, I can recognize that these were stories on some level that I was telling myself, but it was real that I felt out of step with my peers, unseen for who I was, and that made me unsure, like so many teens are, about my worth. The concept of loving myself or caring for myself smacked too much of selfishness. Martyrdom felt so much more comfortable. (laughs) In college, I learned not to care so much what everyone else thought and to be myself happily. But in divinity school is where I found them. People who saw me, who got me. People who became the voices in my head saying, you're not weird, you're interesting. You're enough. You're loved. You have something to offer. These were the people who witnessed me for who I was, not what I did. They wanted to know me in all of my glorious, flawed, changing, and growing humanity. They wanted to hear all my stories. To be understood in that way, sought in that way, loved in that way, was truly life-changing. The work of coming into our power and our presence begins by learning to love ourselves and know our worth deeply, but it culminates in being known in the world for who we are and knowing others for who they are. This month, as I'm sure you realize, is Black History Month. Since 1976, February has been designated as Black History Month, but it began over a century ago in 1915. It was in that year that Carter Woodson, a historian, and a few others founded what is now called the Association of the Study of African American Life and History. Carter Woodson had been born to formerly enslaved people. His father couldn't read, but he was engaged in the world and he had Carter read the newspaper to him every day. And when he got older, Carter Woodson began to work in the coal mines, and there he met a miner named Oliver Jones, who asked him to come and read to a bunch of the men who had worked in the mine. And more than read, these men wanted Carter Woodson to research for them information they couldn't access themselves. Woodson went on to become a teacher. He earned graduate degrees from the University of Chicago and Harvard University, and he worked for many years as an academic and a dean at Howard University. His academic work focused on researching the underrepresented, under-researched, and under history of African Americans. He said that, quote, those who have no record of what their forebears have accomplished lose the inspiration which comes from the teaching of biography and history. Woodson believed deeply in the value of telling the story of black Americans because he understood that in knowing ourselves and telling our story, in witnessing to each other's stories, we find empowerment and hope. And the association he helped found undertook that work. And just 10 years after its founding, the group sponsored a week-long celebration that nationwide encouraged communities and schools to explore the history of African Americans. That week was known as Negro History Week, and it caught on across the nation. By the 1960s, it had grown into a month instead of just a week, and it was in 1976 that Gerald Ford recognized it officially. Since then, each year, and I didn't realize this, but each year, the sitting president recognizes anew the month, like reaffirms it, but also, apparently, endorses a theme. Did you know this? There is a theme Black History Month, this year's theme is African Americans and the Vote. It marks the centennial of the 19th Amendment granting women the right to vote and 150 years since the 15th Amendment granted black men the right to vote. Of course, it's somewhat ironic given our recent history of gerrymandering and voter suppression so fully aimed at African Americans and other groups traditionally marginalized. According to the NAACP, Woodson was known to say that he wished for a time when a week dedicated to African-American achievement and history would be unnecessary, because all Americans would routinely learn about and recognize and value the contributions of black Americans as just another foundational part of this nation's history. Of course, we have not reached such a time. Of course, we still live in a time when people are considered less than because of the color of their skin. Even though overt slavery ended, even though Jim Crow in its then form ended, even though theoretically we live with legal protections for most people, we still live in a world of oppressive prejudices. And the thing about oppression is that it doesn't just take a toll on potential, on economic or educational or professional opportunities. It doesn't just take a toll on literal life, stealing generations of black men from their families and communities because of unjust laws that disproportionately punish them, ongoing oppression also takes a psychological toll. It can take a toll on self-esteem. When someone from the outside is constantly telling you that you aren't good enough, or wealthy enough, or smart enough, or white enough, or man enough, whatever it is, it can have an effect on your mental health. Studies out of UCLA in 2016 showed this, Vicki May is a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management said in an article by Dan Gordon from the UCLA Newsroom, quote, we now have decades of research showing that when people are chronically treated differently, unfairly or badly, it can have effects ranging from low self-esteem to a higher risk of developing stress-related disorders such as anxiety and depression. Gilbert Gee, another researcher working in this field notes in the same article that There are so many different routes, some of them direct and some of them indirect. Meaning, we need not be the direct victims of oppression or persecution, but that there can be a spillover effect to family, acquaintances, community members, demographic groups. Living as a woman, aware of the discrimination shown regularly toward women, takes a toll. Stress, anxiety, Actual changes in cognitive functioning, according to some studies, are all possible impacts of prolonged exposure to discrimination and oppression. And so is low self-esteem. I'm sure you've heard the phrase internalized oppression. It's the concept that a group or individual that is being systematically oppressed begins to believe they deserve the treatment they're receiving. We can begin to lose faith in our own humanity and begin to believe that we are defined as others define us defined by our usefulness, our materiality, our productivity. It might look like the oppressed group adopting the norms of the oppressor's culture as a means of becoming like them. It's a valorization of the dominant culture over the oppressed people's own. It might look like using the tools of the oppressor against one's own own group. Like when women critique each other for their sexual conduct and thus reinforce an oppressive model meant to keep them in line. Internalized oppression is about continuing to valorize the oppressor over oneself. It's about losing a sense of identity in order to become like the oppressor. And at its heart, it's yet another tool of control and dominance. Internalized oppression happens because opportunities are systematically blocked, life is made more difficult, success seems impossible, and it comes to appear that the only way to live well is to live like the dominant group to adopt their ways and ideas. This happens on a systems level and it happens on a personal level. Whenever we as individuals or as groups are exposed over and over to the idea that we are not enough, we can begin to believe it ourselves. We can begin to see ourselves the way our tormentor does. But we have tools at our disposal to undermine the voices that seek to cut us down. We can come to know ourselves and love ourselves, and from there we can create communities that witness to each other's wholeness, to each other's humanity. Our first reading this morning, The Radical Politics of Self-Love and Self-Care by sujin Pate speaks to this. And I wanna acknowledge that Pate is writing to women, specifically in her own terms, to women of color and to third world women. Pate writes that, quote, living in a society that constantly marginalizes you invalidates your experiences and emotions and fosters insecurity, it becomes an uphill battle to love yourself. Pate mentions Audre Lorde, the black feminist lesbian writer. She writes that there's a salve, an elixir, to the poison of the isms that target our bodies and souls. In a piece titled Love as Political Resistance, Lessons from Audre Lorde and Octavia Butler, Adrian Marie Brown also references Audre Lorde, writing that Lorde, quote, taught us that caring for ourselves is not self-indulgence, it is an act of political resistance. And although we know how to meme and tweet those words, living into them is harder. She goes on to write, quote, we have a deeper socialization to overcome, one that tells us that most of us don't matter, Our health, our votes, our work, our safety, our families, our lives don't matter. Both these contemporary authors note that Audre Lorde was among the feminist writers who acknowledged that loving oneself in the face of discrimination and oppression is a powerful act. Extended out, and this is the move that helps incorporate all of us, whatever our experience, loving oneself at all in a society that too often values the superficial the insincere, the material, loving oneself at all in the face of such lifelong training is an act of hope and resistance. Audre Lorde wrote our second reading this morning, A Litany for Survival. It speaks to the truth that some of us were not meant to survive, and that our very act of survival is courageous, political, radical, resisting, She evokes images of being outside, neither here nor there, on the shorelines, at the edges, in doorways, between the dusk and the dawn. She writes, for those of us who were imprinted with fear like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, we were never meant to survive. She writes, when we are loved and we are afraid, love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid love will never return. When we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed, but when we are silent, we are still afraid. Her poem evokes the psychological toll of never feeling safe, of never being enough, of never feeling secure, never feeling at home in the world. There's a pain in what she brings to life with her words. The poem captures deep truths, but she ends with an affirmation. So it's better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Lord ends with this call to speak anyway. Even when you are pushed to the edge, even when you're viewed as less than, made other. She says to speak. But part of being willing to speak and able to speak is believing that your voice needs to be heard, should be heard. And so self-love becomes the foundation the radical act in the face of oppression that says a world that values these particular things and thus does not value me, you are what is wrong, not me. Self-love becomes a radical act of hope and resistance and politics because it empowers and it enables action and change. But what does self-love actually look like? Sujin Pate has some recommendations in her piece. First, Daily affirmations, and I know some of you are going to think of that Saturday Night Live clip with Al Franken and the daily affirmations with Stuart Smalley where he looks into the mirror and he says, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, right? It seems goofy, but but repeated messages about your lack of enoughness can indeed be combated by repeated messages that you are enough. You are beautiful. You are loved. As Pate puts it, quote, the purpose of daily affirmations is to create a no trespassing zone in your mind and energy field that blocks out negative messages that harm and sap your spirit. Another tool of self-love, daily goals. Pate writes, setting goals for yourself that center your needs and desires is another act of self-love and self-care. And here what she's recommending is setting daily achievable goals that help you keep your mental health strong. So things like journaling or engaging in a gratitude practice where you list 10 things you're grateful for each night before bed. She says they have to be specific goals, so not I'm going to exercise each week, but I'm going to do this activity for this long, this many times a week. Specific and achievable. Another tool she says, is to practice empowering interpretations. This one's hard. But this tool recognizes the different ways we can tell our own story. She uses an example from her own life and career. It is a fact, she says, that she has been unable to secure a permanent academic position as a professor. The fiction she tells herself is, rejection is the story of my life. I guess I'm not as smart as I think I am. I'm such a failure. And the empowering reinterpretation is, quote, you thought the PhD was about getting a tenure-track job and being a professor for the rest of your life. You thought wrong. The skills you acquired are actually for something more significant and rewarding than an academic life. The idea is to reframe how you see the events in your life, to tell the story with a different interpretation, one that offers you agency and power and hope. Pate ends her piece inviting all of us, any of us, who, as she puts it, exceed the normative categories of race, gender, class, sexuality, religion, age, or ability, to think about how reframing love as self-love might change us. She asks, how would your life be different if you make yourself the target of loving care today and every day? She believes, and I agree, that these practices of self-love can be life altering. They can form the foundation for depth and wholeness and a deep awareness of our own humanity. But there is a step that comes after Sujin Pate's piece, a step that Adrienne Marie Brown picks up. In her work, she writes, we've been loving too narrowly. The kind of love that we have known and offered, she says, is not sufficient even if it is the greatest love of our lives. The kind of love that we would be forced to celebrate or escape on Valentine's Day is too small. No, she says, we need something bigger. Quote, we're all going to die if we keep loving this way. Die from isolation, loneliness, depression, abandoning each other to oppression, from lack of touch, from forgetting we are precious. We can no longer love as a secret or as a presentation, as something we prioritize, hoard for the people we love, people we know. Prioritizing ourselves in love is a political strategy. It is survival. What we need right now is a radical global love that grows from deep within us to encompass all life. Brown then goes on to ask us to take steps toward this global love that starts with self. We've begun the work of moving from our self-view, from object to human. We've begun the work of loving ourselves in our wholeness for who we are, not what we do. We've begun the work of affirming and embracing and empowering ourselves in the face of socialization and a world that wants to keep us worrying if we are enough. And now, she says, we need to take the step out from that grounded place of self-love and move into the world and into relationship so that we can change the world so that we can answer the call of love in its truest and biggest sense, not in the narrow way we've been taught to understand love. And this calls, Brown says, for radical honesty. She writes, We begin learning to lie in intimate relationships at a very young age. We have to engage in an intentional practice of honesty, to counter this socialization. Learning to speak from our root systems about how we feel and what we want. She says that we can't hide. We have to make room for others to not hide, to share their radical honesty. We have to offer space for them and for ourselves to step into our wholeness and light. And Brown says we need healing. She writes that all of us, all of us, need healing. Trauma is the common experience of most humans on this planet, she declares. And malpracticed love is the cause of much of that trauma. We need to normalize being broken, normalize our need for healing, and then the power that comes with helping each other heal. Love grows exponentially when we see each other's full, flawed, and broken, and beautiful, and whole humanity without shame or fear. Here, we build a community that cares for us and that allows us the opportunity and demands of us the responsibility that we care for others. And that's the final step. It's the building of communities of care by living with deeper love for ourselves and therefore with deeper love for one another to move out from the individual and into the communal, creating for each other places of honesty and healing so that the world can be different. I can attest to what it means for a life to experience communities that privilege self-love, radical honesty, healing, and care. It's through them that we come to know our full power, come to know our full wholeness, come to know our full humanity. It's through answering the call to love At the very first, ourselves. It's through answering the call to love that we resist the world as it is and we come to live as we were meant to in the world, boldly, freely, and with hope. May you know yourself deeply, love yourself truly, and see one another fully. So may it be. Please remain standing and join in the words for Extinguishing the Chalice. They are projected. We extinguish this flame, but may the light of truth light of love and the energy of action burn bright in our hearts until we are together again. You are enough. You have gifts beyond measure to offer each other and the world, and you are loved. May these deep truths help you answer the call to love yourself and others with honesty, healing, and hope. Go in peace.